Hello, everyone. This is Aslak Kelasoy, and I will be the host today for the Cucumber Podcast. Today, we've got a very, very special guest on the show, Gaspar Nagy. Or Gaspar Naj, is that how you say it, Gaspar? Gaspar Naj. Oi, oi, oi. Gaspar Naj. Um, and we get Matt Wine. Wayne? <laughs> Matt, Matt Wynn. We got, okay, and we've got Matt Wynn with us today. Hello, Mr. Hesseloy. <laughs> um, we've also uh, got with us today um, Artie. Hi, Aslak. Hi, Gaspar. And hi, Matt. <laughs> All right. Uh, I met Gaspar um, back in 2009, I think, when Cucumber was very, very young. And, uh, and he had created Specflow, which is the .NET port of Cucumber. And um, there's been a lot of stuff going on in that space lately. and. Uh, I thought it would be interesting for, for all the listeners and, and I guess ourselves to, to know what, what you've been up to lately. Um, how about you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Mm, yeah, so welcome everyone. And uh, actually, yes, that's how we met. So I just uh, started to work on Specflow like uh, eight years ago. And uh, but Specflow at that time was just a kind of side project for me. So I was uh, mainly dealing with helping our internal teams and uh, and coaching them, or how you call it. And uh, just we have seen that somehow this testing bits, this uh, integration of agile testing is somehow missing in our project. So uh, I have I've almost want, built up something exactly the same as Cucumber, but fortunately, I just found that there is already something there which is doing exactly what I want. And I wanted to try out with our teams but unfortunately, with the technology uh, problems, it wasn't so easy. So I had two options, either that I just uh, I will not be able to try it out or I just make something small, which, which supports our, the methodology part. And uh, so this is how I started to work on Specflow. And then it was open sourced and uh, somewhat picked up by the community. And this has also changed my 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 professional life somehow because uh, through Specflow I met more and more people who are having the same problem like I do or like my teams had and uh, and I started to deal more and more with that so yeah I think like uh, almost two years ago I just decided that I should do this as a full-time job so since then I'm a dedicated BDD Specflow trainer coach addict whatever so that's interesting you say that it's it's changed your life. So you you created this thing and and now it's um it's allowed you to to change your career essentially. Um that must be quite quite rewarding and and exciting I imagine. Absolutely. So um I mean uh, I think like every developer I also had sometimes uh, problems of seeing my future because I was quite much sure that I don't want to turn into a, some kind of project manager or something like that. This wasn't my my story. But uh, And um, if you are dealing with technology, then and the technology is changing. After uh, after some time, it's hard to see that, okay, what is the next challenge? What is the interest, next interesting challenge to do? And uh, I was very happy that uh, somehow the I was just uh, going to this direction because uh, this is absolutely, I find, uh, very challenging. And I think it's a... Was a good combination of uh, dealing with the technology because I think uh, in BDD the test automation and everything related to that is very important. 
but also dealing with people and uh, and um, how how we can help a team to better understand the requirements and make a, a better product altogether. So, so when you work with teams who are trying to adopt BDD and and spec flow, I guess you you probably find that they they have some challenges and. Um, but in my experience, you know, some of the some of the challenges they're facing are quite often the same um, from team to team. What what have you seen out in the field with the teams that you work with? What what are the biggest challenges that teams are facing when they adopt BDD and SpecFlow? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I also see some patterns. On the other hand, I my impression was that uh, if you go into the details and um, and, and and look into the the, the the very fine grain part of the of the of the challenges of these teams things are somewhat different all the time uh what i have seen definitely as a as a huge problem is that um that there is no structured way the way about learning about the requirements learning about the domain uh people are following some agile ceremonies like scrum and they are organizing sprint planning meetings but uh but how they are doing that and how we are discussing about their user stories or or features or requirements that's uh typically just a chaos and uh and uh of course in theory everyone knows that yes we have to collect acceptance criteria and uh and uh we have to make tasks out of that at the end but but how these acceptance criteria should really look like and how the how you can turn them into tasks and how you can do that in a way that you are still connected to the domain and not just uh, uh, falling into the, the solution space and uh, focusing on too much on on how you will implement that and forget about what was your goal with that that uh, that tool. So that's uh, that's definitely something which is which is pretty much uh, uh, usual or typical in uh, with any team with I, who I who I encounter. However, in addition to that. Uh, Test automation is also a, uh, another typical problem. Um, some pe- some teams are already doing some automated tests. However, the quality of those automated tests are typically very low. And the problem is not only that they are they cannot work with the technology, but uh, but they don't have a good good strategy, good guidance how they can how they can use the power of technology to really to meaningful automated tests and uh, automated tests that are really helping the progress and not holding it back. So uh, I think these are the two major things that I see at the team. Um, I'm going to ask a maybe slightly controversial question here. Um, more and more people are beginning to, or maybe beginning is the wrong word, but well, more and more people say that you don't need a specialist QA role in your team. and. As, as someone who came, who used to be a QA person, and now I'm uh, in the product side of things, um, I tend to agree with that. Uh, having a specialized QA role, in my opinion, is a waste of resources and also causes bottlenecks, especially in a cross-functional team. What's your opinion on that? And um, well, yeah, what's your opinion on that? So I think it's. Uh, um it's uh, very hard. I think this is very hard to answer because uh, uh, I think whether you need a role or not, that's also something that you typically inherit from the culture of the company. And uh, I think it's not uh, yeah. not a good message to say that, okay, now QA should go. 
I, I believe quality in code and in, in your product is very important, by the way. I, I'm just, it's more about whether you need a, a role for that, yeah. So, so I, think, uh, I think that doesn't carry the, the right message. And I, I started as a, as a software developer and, and I, I think I was starting as a, like a typical software developer. I thought that, okay, software development is the great thing and there are testing as well, which is a kind of side thing. And, uh, and at some point I, I started to learn more about testing and uh, I have realized that there is a lot of interesting knowledge in, te in testing that, that typical developers don't know. And uh, so I cannot really answer the question whether there is a need for a QA role or not, but there is definitely a need for someone who is bringing in this, this knowledge uh, that is related to, to QA. And, uh, and this is not something that a typical developer uh, knows and, um, and and yeah, so it's a kind of uh, uh, specialty uh, that uh, that someone has to has to uh, bring in into the team. So so from this perspective, I think if if there there are a good QA person who are really good in their own profession, which means that they are interested to hear about new things, they are interested to follow about the trends. And then, and then, and trying to learn always how to do QA better, and they are closely integrated with the team, and and then can teach also the developers about these practices and principles. Then I think that can be absolutely fine. So, so I guess so. You come into teams and and you um, and you help them uh, try and adopt better practices, both in in terms of how they um, how they build knowledge around the domain. Uh, how they test, uh, how they collaborate, and so on. But um, there's only one Gaspar, and you know there's a lot of teams out there. So I guess there's, you know, <laughs> in order to help more people, um, I've heard that you uh, you're working on a book. Yes. So I think it's it's more like that that. Uh, that to be able to see all the buzz, I'm really working on, on multiple different projects in parallel, and uh, and one of them is the book, which is uh, uh, I wanted to have a kind of spec flow book for a long time. Uh, this was kind of my wish or vision or something like that, because uh, because spec flow didn't have a real dedicated book uh, uh, earlier, and um, I just wasn't really sure how to start with that and um, I don't know last year uh, together with Sebros we just found each other and uh, started to discuss about how a spec flow book could look like and uh, how we're going to build it and, uh, and and what should be the structure of that and I think uh, we really found a good uh, structure which was kind of inspiring us to, to work on that so we started uh, this as a, as, a, as a new project and uh, yeah, this is what I'm working on uh, right now, and uh, and it's a very interesting uh, challenge uh, for me for multiple reasons. First of all, because I have never written any book yet, so this is this would be my first one, and I also I'm also not a native English person, so this is making it extra also a, an interesting challenge, and uh, and also of course. If you are talking to people and and uh, and dealing with with any kind of topic, then then you get a lot of information in your head. But how to how to how to write it out into a sequence that can be better understood by by someone else? This is very 
very very interesting and i um this is a quite challenging for me and uh, i would like to learn more about that and that's also uh why i'm enjoying this and uh this also means that this is somehow always in in my head so whenever i hear a, an interesting story i already start to think where it should fit into the book and uh, i have uh, the structure of the book always on the wall of my room and uh, and whenever i have some idea i'm just trying to make a note I, I think pretty sure I'm pretty sure that other authors are more or less doing it in the same way. It's a very interesting uh, challenge, and I hope that uh, we'll have a good outcome uh, from that soon. I know the listeners can't hear, but I can see because we're on a video link. I can see that um, plan he's talking about, listeners, and it's very neat. It's not like the scribblings of a crazy person. He's 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 got a very organized plan <laughs> for this book. You mean like when you and I wrote a book? <laughs> <laughs> The scribblings of two crazy persons. Uh, if you haven't already, you should uh, read, uh, sorry, listen to the podcast with um, Emily Weber and how she wrote her book. That was really cool too. She got continuous yeah. feedback and did it in an agile way. So, yeah, that would. Yeah, we are we are trying to follow that practice. Of course, we especially as we are also work distributed uh, with with Sab and uh, we also have a lot of other things to do. It's not so easy to adapt it to our, our, our uh, model. On the other hand, uh, we are also trying to work, uh, work on it in a, in a kind of short feedback loop, agile-ish way. So we have an inner uh, um, review circle, and we are trying to release them a new version or new chapter uh, somewhat regularly, uh, listen to their feedback, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to, uh, to, to use that uh, uh, as an ongoing thing. So, so Matt and I wrote a book, um, what is it now, six years ago, uh, about Cucumber. The first, that was the first Cucumber book, which Seb, who, um, who you are collaborating with, right? He, he sort of translated that book to Java <clears throat> because the original one was in Ruby. Um, and I was actually really pleased to hear that you had decided not to port this book to the .NET. Um, and I was excited about it because even though I think the book, that I'm still quite happy with the book that we wrote, but there's been so many things that have been happening in the BDD and the, and the Cucumber Specflow space um, since we wrote that book. But I'm curious, you know, what was it that made you decide to write your own book rather than translating the original book, which, which I know that you, you did consider at some point? Yes. Yeah. Uh... I have considered it quite seriously because um, I I think also the 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 cucumber book or the cucumber for Java book is uh, is still valid and um, and I even even I have learned a lot from that even though that I wasn't working on those technologies uh, but uh, basically the key trigger where I decided to to just try to do it something from scratch was that basically two things one was was a kind of inspirational thing. So yeah. translating a book is not, it's harder to find energy to, to put into that, even though that I think even just like a pure uh, technology translation would have been uh, quite much effort. And uh, if you are just uh, doing it on someone else's words and on someone else's things, it's, uh, it's harder to find energy for that, and which, which I, I believe it's very very important to to have a good outcome and the other thing is that um 
I think probably it's an unfortunate thing, but uh, but it's 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 like that that uh, every platform has its own specialties, has its own um, own special stacks and uh, technology uh, solutions, and uh, I would I wanted to make a book which is really giving an answer for for those problems that that those people have. So if um, if you are imagining as an average .NET developer or who is working on a I don't know on a, on a, on a web application for example, then they are using a, uh, for example ASP.NET MVC, and just by having this in mind, it it it, it requires a kind of special uh, uh, problems, and um, and um, and I wanted to, to try to give answers for for that one, even though that. Uh, of course, the primary goal is to address it from the specflows point of view, but still, you cannot fully separate this if we are talking about uh, automation. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm um, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Actually, um, when is it going to be done? <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> I think whenever we are discussing this with Seb, uh, he always says that we should never say a deadline. But uh, I hope that we will be able to finish it uh, this year. And um, yeah, so so hopefully soon there will be some beta versions uh, available. Yeah. Is there only going to be technical stuff in the book or, or are you planning on covering some of the more softer aspects of, of BDD as well? I think this is a shift uh, a little bit from our very original plan or at least my very or- original plan because originally I said that uh, anyway, there are some, um, for example, there is the Cucumber book where you can Read a little bit more about the the uh, the BDD theory, and actually, well, the only thing that you need is the how how you can do this with Spectflow. But once I started to think about the structure of the book, I realized that uh, it would just hang in the air if I would just uh, try to provide some. I would try to provide some technical solution for a, for a problem that that I don't even discuss and don't even see it from the uh, from the BDD theory point of view. So at the end, what we have is is really going through all the steps that you are that you are uh, seeing also when you are doing a BDD project. So we really start on when you are starting to analyze a problem and how to learn about the domain, how to find those good examples. Then we will also work on how can we can turn these examples into working into given and then structures and what are the different uh, uh, challenges that you might have hair, have there and and then also of course how you can uh, drive the development based on these scenarios and also how you can maintain them in a in a longer term so so I think at the end I think it will be a half technical half um, um, more uh, methodological book uh, at the end but but somehow we felt that this is a better balance this way yeah. That sounds great. Um, so Specflow uh, is a port of Cucumber to .NET, right? But like every, like every, every tool, I'm sure that Specflow has some, uh, some you know, it's different from, from Cucumber in some ways. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about what, what is that's different? I think the key difference between, between Cucumber and Specflow is basically rooting from the, the typical development environments that uh, the different user groups are, are using, especially when we started Specflow, but I think this is still true that uh, uh, 
.NET developers are much more bound to use an IDE, uh, particularly Visual, Visual Studio. They are much more uh, used to have a nice IDE integration, editor experience, and uh, and things like that, and not so much uh, able to or, or really um, familiar with or comfortable with to use, uh, for example, a command line uh, interface that would be otherwise also perfect. So, uh, so this was our first goal that we wanted to achieve. That so so try to make uh, Cucumber implemented in in .NET in a way that it's well fitting into the into the development environment and uh, at the end this had some some implications and uh, and I think currently the the biggest part of the spectral code base is related to the Visual Studio integration mm. and uh, and uh, and whenever we are talking about spectral and managing the project and improving the project I think this is a this is a very important uh, part of that uh, which is uh, which is which is generally uh, relative uh, tricky to to maintain and needs uh, quite some special knowledge. So this is one one thing that uh, I wouldn't say that's different, but it's uh, just uh, because of that uh, the entire concept is a uh, is 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 slightly uh, seen from a different angle. Yeah. Uh, I think the other differences are much just more like um, more smaller API differences. We of course try to make the API somehow a little bit similar to the, the usual .NET API that uh, that people use, and uh, and we just, there are just some smaller differences where actually probably they just happened because we didn't wasn't even fully sure how how Cucumber works and whether the, the particular behavior is a bug or it's a feature and uh, whatever yeah. we maybe have to uh, so-called fix the bug which was a feature actually. <laughs> it's, it's worth pointing out the similarities though as well as the differences that um, of course you two have been you as like and Gaspar have been heavily involved in the development of the newest parser which is used by almost all of the flavors of cucumber out there um so the java i know at least the java the ruby the javascript the c sharp one spec flow um all of those i don't know if any of the other ones are using it as like you know is, is, is <coughs> yeah, using it um uh, is no, behave using it the go dog is using it which is like the semi-official go implementation um Oh, and Cucumberish as well, the iOS one. Yeah, the iOS one is using it. Yeah, yeah. So we collaborated on on the um, well, basically Gaspar wrote. Gaspar, he's crazy. He wrote his own parser generator uh, that could target multiple languages, so that we could have a, a consistent grammar description, and then just pretty much generate the parser for a lot of different languages. So that that's that was a phenomenal piece of work you did there, Gaspar. So the key thing there to, for, for people to understand is that it means that the specs that you write in Gherkin that you express in feature files, you can run those with uh, any one of the different flavors of Cucumber. So that's a big similarity. If you know how to describe specifications for uh, Cucumber for a Java project, you also know how to describe specifications to Cucumber for a .NET project. Yeah. It's exactly the same syntax. Yeah. yeah. And you called it burp. Why did you call it burp? <laughs> I, will also, I, I will also tell you that, but uh, 
But I just want to highlight that actually, even though that we are talking about the, the differences, because this is what are what the, this is the topic that are that is interesting for us. But generally, the I, I think they are they are massively similar. So whatever concept you have learned with Cucumber or Cucumber Java or whatever is it works it works exactly the same way in 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 in, in Specflow. So generally, the concept of uh, having step definitions and uh, and automating the the scenarios on a step level, uh, having the different hooks, and uh, generally the the general concept of how the these Gherkin specifications are interpreted are all the same. So I think uh, uh, I think these differences are more like uh, funny differences, which are only good for having a good conversation of between different uh, platform people. But I think they are mainly uh, very similar. So, yeah, the burp. So, how does the the, the burp name was coming from? Uh, I think it's so. Uh, the 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 first part. I think it's a it's a it's a word coming uh, from the different letters, and the the B is coming from the name of my son, who is called Bertalan, and. Uh, and I said, I don't remember what the RP was. Yeah, Bertalan, this is the first three letter, and the P was just a parser. So uh, it was uh, <laughs> nothing special. Uh, actually, That's quite I had, special. I mean, uh, yeah, it's very special. And, uh, and the thing is that uh, I have all little, little things that are named after my children. So in Spectral, for example, there is a mini dependency injection framework that you can, that you can use. Uh, you don't want to switch to a real official dependency injection framework, and that is called body and just a little different uh, uh, spelling, which is coming from my, my first loader called Borbala. So, and I also have a small tool uh, which is taking the name of my other daughter. So, yeah, this is just, uh, just uh, the Easter egg. But now, as I told you already, that's not uh, good anymore. So, maybe you have to cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant idea because I'm running out of names for, I'm running out of, of, of good ideas for new, names for new things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gaspar, um, I used to work in .NET a long time ago. In fact, it was kind of like my world before I dived into the Cucumber Ruby RSpec community back in 2007-8. Um, I'd been working in .NET for, for like all my career, really. Um, and I remember when I was working on the Microsoft stack that the community had sort of a real um, interest and enthusiasm about design patterns. And there was a lot of talk about design patterns, but not so much, I would say at the time, um, enthusiasm for test-driven development kind of practices. So um, quite a lot of the libraries that we were using back in the day there weren't really designed to be testable. and. Um, it didn't really seem like there was a lot of kind of mind sharing in, in the .NET community. And that was the time when like alt.net was just uh, coming out and it was a bit of a kind of underground movement to be interested in TDD. And when, when I switched to Ruby, it was like a much more prevalent sort of popular activity in that in that language community. And I wonder what, like if you could put me up to date really and tell us in the last 10 years, like how's that evolved in the .NET community? Uh, have people flocked to Specflow and BDD and other TDD techniques or has it still been sort of something that's um been a bit slower for people to to get into mm -hmm. so well i don't know what is the the final state especially not in compared to the other technologies but there has been a lot of improvements in the 
in the in the last years on that. So I think uh, nowadays we can say that also testing has driven thinking, has driven development is uh, is a uh, is our concepts that every .NET developers knows, and then they are trying to practice this. Uh, so so I think uh, I think there was there was a big change uh, in these regards, and uh, and. I, so you were also asking why this has happened or what was the, what was triggering this. I think in the .NET communities, typically many things were are triggered by by Microsoft. So I think uh, once Microsoft uh, tries to adapt these things and uh, uh, trying to make them in a as a first class citizen, also in the in their IDE. So for example, you don't have to pay for an extra special version of Visual Studio just to be able to have a unit test runner. Just by making such a small uh, decisions, uh, these concepts getting more uh, popular. So I think uh, nowadays it's, it's, it's much better. Uh, how many projects are using uh, BDD and SpecFlow or real TDD? That's, of course, uh, it's a harder question to answer. Uh, but uh, definitely people are interested in, in learning in that and, uh, and trying to find solutions for uh, for their testing problems. So yeah, test automation is definitely a, a topic of interest. Do you have any plans to, to support SpecFlow and Visual Studio Code? Uh, does anyone else have any plans? So generally, yes. Uh, on the other hand, right now there are a lot of interesting movements in the, in the .NET space. Uh, and I think the, the Visual Studio Code is also a good uh, indicator for that. So there are new things are uh, coming, and uh, I think there is one more thing which is uh, probably not so visible, but probably more important than is that uh, there is now a complete new .NET framework which is called .NET Core, which is fully open source and uh, supports not only Windows machines but uh, but uh, Mac and Linux. Uh, it runs very well on Mac and Linux as well, and uh, and. Um, and hopefully this new uh, platform will be the uh, the primary platform for this for backend development and uh, and and this is what we also need to support first with with specflow since this is a complete new framework and there are many infrastructure has been, so the, the infrastructure has been changed and not everything is available that specflow is using it's not so, so trivial to port uh, SpecFlow to .NET Core. So this is something that we are currently working on. And, uh, and once we have that, um, then, then we can see how uh, this can also be integrated into the, into the Visual Studio Core. And um, yeah, so, and, but also Visual Studio Core is, is still pretty much new and uh, it's not fully clear yet who is the target audience uh, for that. Right now, it more looks like that uh, Visual Studio Core is more for for front end development and uh, not so much on the not so much for the back end uh, development, which is more important probably for the for for generally for SpecFlow. Yeah, but this yeah, can actually, change. The <clears throat> the the next version of Gherkin, uh, well, Gherkin has been updated to support Visual Studio Core. Some some great work done by. I think one of your former colleagues, right, uh, Andreas uh, Willick. Yes, .NET Core. You wanted to say, yeah, it's hard I mean, to .NET learn. .NET Core. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, yes. Uh, for the gherkin parser, the things are a little bit easier because that uh, that's uh, quite much. Uh, sorry, it doesn't use any special uh, technologies. It's it's almost pure code. But still, we have challenges there. So, for example, uh, the gherkin parser can parse a file. So if you are just giving a file path for that, then then it can parse it. So it needs uh, file I/O as well. However, in .NET Core, there are different API levels. And uh, and of course there are some levels of API where where file I/O is not included. And uh, again, we we have to make a decision here whether we are targeting a higher uh, standard level API standard level where the file I/O is in included, but then we are excluding some devices where this is not possible, or we are just targeting a lower, but then we have to make a special version of of the Gherkin parser. Which, is, which doesn't depend on the file I/O. So it's a uh, even there. There are some conceptual questions that are that have to be solved. Yeah. Um, if people want to help, well, first of all, do you want help? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So what what should what should people do if they want to help you um, evolve Specflow and add new features and and fix bugs and so on? Mm-hmm. So we are trying to to make the Specflow project project more welcoming and um, and I think traditionally it wasn't so easy to contribute with Specflow, especially because uh, for example the Visual Studio integration was in the same repository as the as the as the as the core runtime and if you wanted to contribute even just fix a small bug you had to install I don't know seven different SDKs so it wasn't really easy to start but now we have split it up into smaller ones and I think generally it should be if you have a Visual Studio uh, then you should be able to compile and uh, and run the tests of the of the of Specflow itself. So so I think I hope that this uh, this makes the contribution somewhat easier. And uh, yeah, also we are trying different smaller techniques to to support that. Like uh, we have a Git channel which is dedicated for people who want to contribute. So so whoever uh, has an idea to fix, then we can have a discussion there. When we are happy to uh, provide support for for that. We are also subscribed or, or integrated with this uh, with this up for grabs uh, idea. So we have some special tags for those issues where we think that uh, that probably um, someone who who doesn't have so much experience with with Specflow can already try to fix it. I think now we have nowadays we have a quite uh, good coverage of. Uh, Unit and Specflow tests for Specflow itself. So if you want to make a, a small change, then then you can get the feedback whether you really screwed up everything or or just uh, uh, generally you are on a good track of of of, of keeping the, the protect quality. So these kind of things that we are we are trying. I don't say that uh, we we already have uh, so many contributors that we couldn't allow anymore. So it's really uh, call for everyone who is interested to to play with uh, with this because I think uh, uh, there are still many things that uh, where we could uh, benefit from others' help. You mentioned a thing there called up for grabs. What what is that? I think uh, uh, so. The the general idea is that uh, that uh, so just like in every. Uh, uh, open source projects there there is a list of issues list of bugs and uh in case of specflow we are managing these in on github and uh and uh there are quite many 
different bugs, and there are uh, there are ones which are very complex to solve, or probably we will, will not be able to solve it in the close future. But uh, but there are ones which are relatively simple. Just uh, they are they are addressing a particular aspect of uh, of, the, of the product, or for any other reason, they are they are a little bit more simple. And uh, and and basically, what we did is that uh, we have uh, selected a special tag called up for grabs, and we have tagged those issues which we think that uh, that are somewhat easier. So anyone who is interested to contribute, they can filter the issues for the for the special tag, and uh, and then then they can uh, choose an interesting uh, challenge to fix a bug or, or make a small improvement in, in SpecFlow. So this is uh, from the technical perspective. From the, uh, uh, from the initiative perspective, there is a website where those projects who are open uh, for contributors in this way can register. And, uh, and, uh, and basically, if you would like to find another interesting project which, where there are some of these specially labeled issues or starting points, you can find uh, a lot of examples there, so I think it's a good good start for someone who would like to be more better engaged with open source project get or just uh, learn about the technology or just get practice or have fun because I think it's uh, well, it can be also a, a real fun to work in in these projects. Yeah, and and it's a great way to learn as well, right? Um, and 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 get to know new people. Um, it's highly recommended. Absolutely, absolutely. I so I think I think that's a that's a great opportunity. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we are also doing such uh, online gatherings or whatever we call it. Uh, I think they are calling it issue issue discussion meetings or whatever. Uh, we used to have it every month. Now we had a gap, and uh, where we go through the open issues uh, with uh, the core contributors or anyone else who would like to join. And uh, and this is also a good time to talk about the, the different issues, how we would solve that, and uh, and then we can also discuss this with any potential contributor as well. So that's also a good a good way to get involved uh, with the project, not only in a in a chat way, but uh, but also in a kind of a voice communication way as well. While I have t you two. Um on the line and we're all three of us leaders of big open source projects or like pretty popular open source projects um and we're all men and uh i, I wanted to discuss because it's often like a, one of these questions that often gets asked of a of a panel of women right but it's our problem too what do you think like both are the so we recognize right that there's a problem of uh, diversity, especially gender diversity in open source projects, that the gender diversity in open source projects is even worse than it is in tech generally and in, in software generally. Um, that's like a sort of a, just a known statistic. Um, but I suppose that my my question for you two is. Uh, what, how, how do you think that sort of negatively affects our projects and, and what would be a positive effect of doing something about it and what can we do about it? Or, or are we already doing about it? Apart from, obviously, the thing you mentioned, uh, Gaspar, with Up for Grabs, what else can we do about it? What are your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. So I think... Uh, so for me, I always saw that... So 
probably because I was working as a as a as a Hungarian person in an Austrian company for a long time and uh, and mainly talking with other European people and and, and also people from uh, uh, in other continents. So I was never I I never whenever I I talk to a person about technology and about about uh, our profession, I I never consider nothing about him so regardless of their gender their roots their language their whatever i i i, I can very well separate this and I, I i don't know how much this is visible from the outside but uh, but definitely i i am taking care of that uh, that uh, the specflow project will be always operating this way so uh, whenever i would unfortunately i have never seen any any bad uh, things regarding this uh, in the spectral project communication anywhere else, but whenever I would, I would definitely would uh, uh, stand out for that or against against that, and uh, and and I really don't care if a contributor, whatever they are, uh, because because that's not the the point. The the point is whether uh, what are their thoughts and how they can they how we can support each other. So I I'm very I'm very uh, strong have a strong opinion on that. So yeah, I <clears throat> I've got similar thoughts about this, or maybe it's not similar. I don't know. Um, first of all, how it's affecting uh, the project. I th- I think you know for for any kind of group um, where there's a lack of diversity, you know, I I, th- I think yeah you become weaker as a group. Uh, because there's a there's, there's groupthink involved, and uh, and you're missing out on on different perspectives that that would be present in the group if if the group was more diverse, right? Um, and also by by being a uh, well, I, w- I wouldn't go so far to say that the cucumber community, respectful community, is not diverse because it's 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 diverse on on many different axes. Um, uh, you know, age, um, uh, ethnicity, and so on, but. But not so maybe not maybe not so much on the gender uh, on the gender side of things. Um, but but when there is a group that is absent, um, or or at least a minority, you know that perpetuates that that um, that lack of diversity because it's always hard to be the only you know the, the person who stands out. It becomes difficult to join. You feel like you don't belong. So so that's I think that's how it affects it. So what 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 I think we can do. And this is something that I've learned from my um, my wife's cousin, who who works with uh, with minority groups in the United States. Um, what what she does is to is to build role models. Uh, if you if you want a group to become more diverse, you need some role models from the from the underrepresented groups uh, that other people can look up to, um, and you know that, so that they can think. Hey, I, I can do this too. It's not just because I am, uh, you know, of of some particular group that I can't do this. So, so what we can do as a community is <clears throat> is that we can help build those role models. Uh, we can invite underrepresented group groups to our conferences. We can encourage people to uh, to contribute to our open source projects and so on. And I think this is a very long process. You know, first you need to build those role models. And as those role models thrive, then other people are going to want to join uh, more naturally. That's great. That fills me with great optimism. (laughs) 
Yeah, on the other hand, I think uh, I think uh, there are some general ethical problems as well with with open source uh, communities, and uh, and uh, and one thing is that typically that uh, that you are you can do open source contribution on your on your free time, and in 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 case of childcare and uh, and family activities, generally uh, women has has less free time. Uh, that they could they could technically spend on on open source contribution, and uh, I think it's uh, just one aspect that uh, that now we are lacking their uh, their participation and so that lacking their their influence in our projects. But uh, but uh, more and more, any kind of activity on an open source project becomes more and more as a entry barrier for a new job, which is uh, making this uh, problem even worse. Because it's not that just they they cannot have fun with us uh, at Specflow, but that uh, they will probably not be able to get that job that they would they supposed to get. So I think this is a I think this is a very tough and uh, and very important question. And uh, I think there are, nowadays at least there is a, a discussion about this, and and more and more articles are are published on this topic. And uh, yeah, I think uh, sooner or later we will find a better balance because I think right now we don't have a balance yet. It's more like an imbalance. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I want to say about this um, that we're doing about it. One uh, thing that I hope we're going to do about it is that we're, so, so when we run our Qconfest series of events in the end, at the end of June, um, the Qcon space, uh, open space conference, which is designed to be a sort of an open space where there will be a, a complete mix of practitioners and open source uh, contributors. And we're hoping to use that as a chance for people who are interested in getting involved in the open source project to meet um, existing contributors and, and sit side by side with them and, and learn more about how to contribute to the project. Um, we're trying to make that event as welcoming as possible. Um, we're putting on childcare. There's even hopefully going to be some kind of kids club for older kids at, uh, at the weekend as well over that event. Um, so people should know that 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 is a, a good reason to come to to Qconfest is because we are putting that event on partly to help grow the the, the open source community. Um, so that's definitely going to be part of what's going to be going on there. Um, and we're going to try and keep the price down for the Qconfest uh, for the for the Qcon space the the open space event over the weekend. That the open space part of that of that event is going to we're going to keep the price down as low as we can, so it's uh, easy for people to to come along. Yeah, that's very good, and uh, yeah, I think that's these small steps are 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 making at the end the the progress. So, yeah, we have to use all the opportunities for this. So, Gaspar, you've you're doing uh, you you you're running a, a successful uh, open source project. You're about to write a book. Uh, I also know that you do a lot of um, speaking engagements and and trainings. Do you have anything? Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what's lined up? Where are you going to go next and and speak and train people? Ah, oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. So yes, I'm I'm trying to be active also in in, in conferences. I don't know what is coming next, uh, uh, but uh, but in terms of trainings, I'm also having some uh, Specflow public courses where which is where I have a uh, three days very intensive and very practical hands on. Uh, session with the people who are coming there, and uh, and actually the two 
one the, the next two uh, versions of that is will be in may and in in june and uh, regularly i have it in london so the june end of june one will be in in london at uh, at skills matters but for may i'm trying out something new so i'm trying to host an open specflow course in in budapest which is my hometown and uh, and i would like to invite people from from all over the europe here because i think budapest is a beautiful city and uh, and i think it's a uh, it's it could be a great fun to learn about specflow and learn about bdd and have uh, in uh, enjoy the beautiful city in in may so uh, this is what's coming up next it will be in uh, uh, 29th of may are you going to be able to make it to QCONFEST in London in June, you think? Yeah, unfortunately not. Um, so I was already booked at the, at the date where, uh, where, the, uh, where the QCUP will be. And actually, I think I will meet you, right? right? On, a, on a conference oh, in Poland. Right. <laughs> yes, so yes. I think we are both invited to a, a great uh, Polish testing conference. Yeah, where we do, we, yeah, yeah, where we will, which is a very interesting uh, uh, conference, especially because it it is free for the attendees, which I really appreciate that someone is really yeah, putting really their cool. energy and their 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 money to to support the local community in this way as well. So I'm really proud to be there, and uh, actually, yeah, together with with us, like we will do a keynote um, on that Saturday. Okay, I think we've uh, we've come to a close of this uh, this podcast. Um, I would like to thank you once again, Gaspar, for joining us, uh, and um, and thanks to to Artie and Matt as well. Um, and remember, people, if you if you li- if you like this podcast, you can comment and uh, subscribe on iTunes. That really helps others find us. And um, stay tuned for the next episode. Bye, bye, bye. Hey, <laughs> bye. <laughs>